0: My name is Era, and I'm the host of the Telmo Creator Podcast. I chat with creators from all over the world to share their stories and discuss hot topics in a way that I hope inspires, educates, and entertains you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Telmo Creator. I'm your host, Era, and today I have uh, a guest who's calling in all the way from Calgary, Alberta. It's not that far, but I just wanted to say that. Um, her name is Anisha Srijanavin, and she's executive vice president of Client Success at Benevity, and she was previously a director at Eloqua, another Canadian tech startup, and that was acquired by Oracle uh, quite a while ago. So, she is a veteran in the Canadian tech space. So, Anisha, welcome to the show. Thanks for, for jumping on.
1: Hi, her. good to see you and talk to you. It's been a while. <laughs>
0: and i was telling anisha we we had a pretty good pre-recording conversation about the calgary real estate market and this whole debate between condo and house and uh um i wish i kind of recorded it but maybe we might get into it later but Mm -hmm. um anisha recently is in the real estate game in calgary so that's kind of how it came up and she's currently without ac but uh she's champing it out and uh sharing her story today. So thank you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I won't I won't lie. It's a little bit hot. Who knew Calgary, it turns out is actually it can be a very hot city in the summer. Um, But yeah, really glad to be on the show. Thank you for having me.
0: Perfect. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, I I always like to start at the beginning. Um, Obviously, I I know your sister as well. But I would love to know about your upbringing. And just I'm at this point where like, especially now that I have young kids, I'm like always trying to connect the dots between upbringing and who you eventually end up becoming. And I know there's a series of dots in between, but mm-hmm. your early years or like, not early years, but your formative years really, I think, play a part in what you end up doing because of the things you've been exposed to or like what your parents introduced you to. So tell us about that.
1: Sure. Um, so I was born in Sri Lanka, um, and but left at a very young age. Um, I think I was two or three years old uh, at the time that I left. And I was part of that contingent or cohort of Tamil Uh, people from Sri Lanka went to Nigeria. So my dad was uh, an engineer and was part of that crowd um, that went out there. And so lived sort of that very young life outside of Sri Lanka and out of the the Tamil community and really sort of um, had sort of those very early years and in a different place altogether. Um, And then went back to Sri Lanka for a year. Uh, And in many ways, I sort of credit that one year as strange as it sounds. And This is how much, you know, your younger years sort of stay with you all the way through your life. But that one year when I was six years old is probably the year that, you know, formatively actually helped me learn the language, learn Tamil, learn the alphabet, learn how to speak. Um, And I can't necessarily say that today I'm fluent in it to my mother's like horrified you Mm -hmm. know she's sort of horrified that neither of her daughters really sort of um, picked up the language and the love that she has for it Um, but the accent the ability to speak in it so much of that is from those very early years that you know when you sort of talk about what those formative years matter um, that's the thing that I always remember and it's sort of that gift that I got from that time Um, but moved to Canada soon after and we, we were sort of that family that came here in the mid '80s. Um, you know, very early to sort of um, the, the early sort of Tamil community that was here at the time really didn't have, you know, there weren't restaurants, there weren't stores, um, you, you know, you didn't really have babus to go to, to, to go and buy Uriya Pram from or anything like that. Um, but you had a, a very tight-knit family friend circle um, that really sort of became the quote-unquote community for you and for me as I was growing up. Um, And so that community was what my parents were both highly engaged in. You know, my dad was somebody who volunteered quite a fair bit in lots of community organizations and associations, um, particularly in the seniors um, world. And my mother was somebody who had a love of the Tamil language and spent, uh, you know, almost 30 years teaching Tamil um, as a second language. And so I was always somebody that had grown up um, in and out of going to calabalas and festivals and dancing, you know, learning by the and going to different sort of schools and classes and things like that. And so sort of grew up with that community as sort of part of that base. Um, and then kind of, you know, that became sort of the launch pad in some ways that I sort of think of as that call of that, that strength or that community or that net that we all fall back on but that's part of who I am today even though perhaps you know now I'm sort of living in Calgary which has a smaller Tamil community out here very long established but maybe not as um, diverse or as deep as the one that we have in Ontario and in Toronto Canada.
0: So you grew up in Nigeria so are you part of the is that how you know Manjula?
1: Yes, yes. Okay.
0: So you are you part of uh, the well, We
1: actually never met in Nigeria.
0: Oh, um, I see. Okay, we
1: okay. met um oh gosh, now it's like twenty, twenty-five years ago, but um there's an organization called Cantide. Uh and we met when we both volunteered there oh so many years ago <laughs> when we were youth.
0: <laughs> oh, I see, okay. Cause there's that whole Nigerian contingent is like yourself, Manjula, my friend Kamuta. Ashanti Omkar. So there's something, something in that Nigerian soil or whatever it is. Uh,
1: I mean, I think a lot of it probably does have to do with the fact that, you know, if you think about our parents, um, you know, many of them ended up leaving Sri Lanka because of lack of opportunities that they had. But I do think that it takes a little bit of that, call it courage, um, a little bit of risk taking. And so I suspect that many of our parents shared a little bit of that characteristic that would have them get on a plane for some of them for the first time and go to a entirely different country and sort of, you know, start to build a life for themselves there, you know, however short the adventure ended up being. But um, I think that's probably why there's, you know, there are certain, there are certain experiences that probably have shaped us similarly.
0: Yeah. I think when you just like, when you say that also, like I've been thinking a lot about that and I I don't think I, I, I get more of the magnitude now because you know, for example, when we travel, we're using Google Maps, all this stuff to kind of get around in new countries where we don't know the language or where things are. But we have all this technology and know how to do that. Like they literally had none of that. They just packed up whatever they had, got in a plane, showed up in a, they, they grew up in a tropical climate for the most part, coming mm-hmm. to a place depending on the time of year and cold weather, you know, not dressed. Um, yeah, like I, like I don't, I definitely, I mean, again, maybe, you kind of um you know just get accustomed to your your surroundings just adapt but i can't imagine myself doing that and i think it's only at like when i get older i realize just the magnitude of that those decisions they made and the courage like you said they had and also the other thing you said was community which i feel like as a Tamil community you know which is a good thing they've got more successful you know people have done better but the, I guess, the negative or the downside of that is like, before everyone used to be in one place, and like, um, you know, I, I felt like things were everyone was a bit more close. But now it's like everyone's more dispersed into like, different communities. I mean, I still take for granted how close the community in general is in Toronto. But um, that's just one of the things that I observed. Like talking to a lot of people is growing up because everyone is immigrants. You know, we were just trying to band together with resources, time you know people are looking after each other's kids while they're at work it's a yeah. beautiful thing to kind of hear about so yeah
1: yeah i i think you know one of the 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 things about that if you know one a few things that you just sort of said in there it's like we are all driven by the experiences that we have right and um that tribe or that community or that sense of coming together In some cases, it was sharing of resources and sharing of our time. In other cases, it was actually just doing things for each other, doing sort of that sense of good and sort of um, bringing, you know, um, making something bigger than, you know, bigger than sort of what you alone could do. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that, um, you know, when I think about that, that tribe of people, that village of people. And in many ways, they raised me, right? Like it's, I grew up with that tribe around me and that collective aunties and uncles who, you know, always had a little bit of an eye on you to make sure that you were doing okay. Sometimes it was good, sometimes not so much. But, um, you know, that that collective sort of interest in people doing well and people doing, um, you know, being able to stand up on their two feet. I think that's one of those things that propels so many of us you know, now to want to do the same, you know, but perhaps to your point, you know, how do you do it? Because it's a slightly different dynamic, you don't necessarily have the same cohesive community all going through the same set of shared experiences. We're now a diaspora all over the world, you know, in so many different countries, uh, and our experiences now are so different as
0: well. Also, just thinking about my experience, like, like all of experiences, the only reason I am where I am with kind of the like how blessed I am in terms of life is because my parents made a decision. They came to a country at the right time when immigrants were welcome. Right. Um, you know, like I didn't have to go through this extensive process to become a citizen. Um, that's just like nothing that I control. It's just I just got lucky. My parents made a brave choice, and I'm I'm reaping the benefits. And like these are, that's just the difference between me and somebody in like another part of the world that doesn't have the same set of opportunities. So um, yeah. Uh,
1: I I think you're totally right, Erica, and I think that's the thing that you know. My sister and I have always had this conversation that there is a there's a part of who we are simply because we happen to win a lottery ticket. mm -hmm. Call that lottery ticket karma, faith, destiny, whatever it might be. Um, But there are people just like us who didn't get that chance and who didn't get that opportunity, and I think you know, it's almost, you get to this place where you have this real understanding of what your privilege looks like, because the successes we have are built on us having that, you know, lottery ticket so early in our lives, where we were either had parents who took those risks, or um, circumstances brought us that way, or, well, you know, um, luck.
0: Well, you know, they say in like, uh, professional, world, well, the skill stacking, where, you know, you build up like a layer of these skills that kind of intersect and make you who you are. But I also look at it as kind of like, I don't know what you want to call it. Maybe it's called luck stacking, where it's like, number one, I was born relatively healthy, I came to like an awesome country. Um, you know, my parents were able to kind of also stay healthy and kind of make an income enough to kind of put four kids to school. And like, all these things had to kind of align perfectly for me to end up here. And right. sometimes when I'm like complaining or like thinking about Oh, like, I wish I had this or that. I'm like, man, you got to, like, really, you got to, like, you got to just be, gr- like, grateful for where you are, like, to be complaining about this kind of problem. So, yeah, it's just, uh, we went on a whole lot, like, a whole tangent, but, like, I think that's a, it's something that definitely, like, it's kind of the central theme of a lot of our, like, conversations with people that I talk about is, you know, it's a lot of the diaspora that have, again, been successful at something, but it's because of all these things that's allowed them to be successful that you know they haven't realized that's enabled them so anyways yeah
1: yeah I mean I think we're we're building on what others have sacrificed in order to get us here and sometimes you can you can get to very tangible stories of what your parents have done what your family members have done you can get to tangible sacrifices that people in your community have made or it could even be and not just sort of your community but I also think about like you know, the, the neighborhood that I grew up in, you know, the neighbors that I had, the, um, how lucky I was to have a dance teacher who took time and effort to invest in me and then her parents to do the same with me as well. Like it was, you know, there are, um, so many types of ways in which you can be lucky and that luck stacks up because they're invested in your sort of, you know, your success or growth or development but you finding sort of your your potential. And I think not everybody gets that and not everybody is so lucky. And so when you are, you, you have this moment um, and I have the moments often, right? Where, you know, when you have that you know, moment of dissatisfaction where something isn't going your way or like, I'm gonna go back to what it is I definitely have that I should be grateful for and the gratitude that you have for it.
0: For sure. This episode is sponsored by Nobody. That's right, nobody. So if you could be kind enough to hit that subscribe button, that would mean a lot to me. So now let's get into you know, your the, the success you have experienced. So let's start off with Eloqua. And did I pronounce that right? I always I feel like even when I talk to Manjula about this, I always mispronounce the company name. Did I say it right?
1: Eloqua? Yeah, yeah.
0: okay. Um, so what was your experience like with Eloqua? Because I mean, I, I think you guys were, like yourself, you guys were there relatively early. And then, you know, obviously there was a successful outcome. So what were like some of the big things you got out of that experience?
1: Yeah. You know, when I joined, um, we were less than 17 people. I think I was employee number 17. This is the only time I remember my employee number. <laughs> um, but I was employee number 17. And I'm pretty sure we had fewer than that in terms of people. Uh, and, um, you know, they've had sort of their immediate formative moments, you know, you go and sort of talk to them and um, talk to them being the founders. And there are stories of, you know, wondering whether you'd be able to make the next pay run, wondering if, you know, this actually is a product um, that people will buy. I think I came at a point where I took that job where I was out of school. I just finished. I just graduated. Um and, you know, that's a different story in and of itself. But I didn't know what I was going to do with my career. I I didn't really have a sense of purpose. What I did know was I had a degree in human biology and I didn't want to be a doctor and I didn't necessarily want to be a researcher. And so all of a sudden it was like, well, what am I going to go do? Um, and taking this job at, at that time was really me probably being driven a little bit by curiosity, right? What's this thing called tech? I was taking this job right after what had been a massive crash in the market, right? So we're going back a couple of decades, but it was like this big crash. Nobody wanted to be uh, in tech. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, maybe I should take a job in tech. <laughs> um, so driven a little bit by curiosity, um, but also driven just by pure necessity. I had a student debt I needed to pay off. And I needed a paycheck, and um, you know these two things, you know I could kind of address taking this job. And the early days were were definitely, um, I don't know. You've been in startups before, Ara. It's a little bit of like you just do everything, right? It's a Jack and Jill of all trades type of job. You're an account manager. You're a trainer. You're the coffee maker. You're the, you know, the person who is waving your your hands while somebody behind the scenes is is coding away and trying to make something work. Um, but you're trying to do all those things in those early stages. And so I was pretty fortunate, um, you know, I, you know, I'm sure the founders would disagree with me and the people who worked quite hard to drive the strategy might disagree, but I was really lucky that, um, you know, it was one of those places where I was forced to build a career for myself. I, uh, we were there and we, you know, that the company was growing and yet you know, we had a recession, and we had to downsize. And then, you know, we started doing, you know, started growing again. And as we grew, we decided to go public, you know, and so I got to have that experience of what it meant to, to take a company public and what it meant to run a public company. And then very soon after, you know, I go from working at this company over a decade. I was employee number 17 and we go public and we're probably just over 500 people. So we, we've grown a lot. Um, but we get bought by a mammoth company like Oracle, which has a hundred thousand people. And so going through that experience of growing a company, getting it acquired, um, and then integrating it. Cause I then ended up staying at Oracle for quite a few years. Um, you know, I, I think it's, One of those things that you sort of get to a place where you learn a lot of different things about a lot of different things. Um, And I think those are the sorts of things that sort of hold you, uh, especially in a place like tech.
0: (laughs) So as you guys got purchased or, you know, taken over by Oracle, like you said, is a mammoth company, they've been around for a long time. I forgot there's a law or like, you know, a principle, they say, like, the longer something has been around, the the more likely it's going to be around for a long time. There's a principle for that. So whenever people tell me about Facebook's demise, I'm like, no, it's going to be here for a while. Um, So with Oracle and, you know, you go from this startup that, you know, obviously grew to a certain point. But Oracle is a mammoth compared to you guys, especially in terms of headcount. What were some differences that you saw in terms of work culture, speed of innovation? You know, just talk about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think. You know, a place like Oracle, especially you know that initial period, it's like culture shock, right? Imagine going to a, uh, another country where they don't speak the language that you speak, right? There's a little bit of that that happens um, because something that you know you might have been able to do just by bumping into your CEO in the hallway when you're working at a small company and get approval and keep going, that's not going to happen at a company that's massive and that's large. Uh, you're going to spend, you know, and a lot more layers of approval, but the likelihood is you're also gonna get access to a larger checkbook. The, the bets that you can make, the projects that you can work on, all of a sudden the potential for them is also so much larger. Um, but the responsibility that also comes along with that, right? And so, yeah, I would say in large companies, you know, things can move a little bit slower, but the impact that you can make can also be much larger. It depends on what you're trying to do though, and what you're trying to get off the ground. I, you know, I, I get the, the innate battle because eventually I got to this place where I was lucky. I was running a lab in a, a place like Oracle. And so I got to a place where I found that niche entrepreneurial space where I could do what small companies were doing within a very large organization. And I've managed to find my fit in there. So I ended up staying for a while. But once it got to a place where I was going to, you know, merge back into what the larger organization was like, I was like, that wasn't going to be for me. And so I ended up leaving and going to a different company that was much smaller in nature.
0: Well, I guess that that was my next question, which was, seemed like things were going like great as you described. So how did the opportunity with the Benevity come along? Like, how did you even hear about the company? Um, What made you excited about potentially joining?
1: you know when we talk about we were talking about luck stacking right there's there's a little bit of luck stacking when i think about this um so while i was at oracle that was a great thing about being at that company i had a boss who um really the, the best way i could sort of describe it, it was he was encouraging me to be just like he's like you just need to think bigger what is it that you want to do how do you think that you can bring your talents to life and one of the things that i'd always contemplated. Um, especially I think you know maybe call it the complex of having a degree that had nothing to do with the career that I was in I was like oh you know I I really think I should go back and do an MBA maybe I should go to school you know maybe I should stop working and do all this and um, in that process you know I just uh, had had a number of conversations with a few mentors and, and landed where I was like you know what I'm not going to quit my job, but I am going to do an EMBA, which was sort of like a part-time MBA, the executive version of it. And, um, you know, got pushed along with a mentor and uh, decided that I was going to do that for a couple of years, which made the process of working and going to school and all of that very intensive. There are a lot of sacrifices that you make. But as I was finishing that, there was an exercise that we did. And that exercise was, you know, where do you want your future career to go? And what do you want it to be? Um, and I remember writing out this entire, I don't, it's almost like a vision board. Have you ever done a vision board before?
0: I know what the concept is, but I have never done one practically. No.
1: Never never done one. Okay. Well, I mean, it, it's pretty much what you do is you sort of imagine what, you know, call it whatever your vision is for the future. And then you find things that would represent that vision and put it on there. So it could be pictures, it could be um, quotes, uh, it could be, you know, art, things that you draw, but things that sort of like bring, you know, some sort of um, visualization to this dream that you might have for yours, right? And um, we built up this this vision board. And as I was building out this vision board, I was like, you know, I'm exhausted. I'm not going to go take a job. I'm not going to do anything. I put this vision board aside. I finished school. I was wrapping up sort of the job that I was doing at Oracle, and they were going to move me into a different job. And I had an opportunity where uh, my boss at the time was very supportive and wanted me to move to Silicon Valley, and I was going to go live in San Francisco. And I was just in the process of getting all of it sorted out, visa included and everything. And I had a recruiter call me, um, and the recruiter was recruiting for a role at Benevity, and uh, said to me, you know, hey, like we have this tech company in Calgary, really think you should talk to them. And I was like, uh, Calgary? I've never even set foot in this place. I I don't think I'm I'm gonna be going out to Calgary. But thank you very much. Here's like five people you should go talk to. Um, who are gonna be great at that type of job that you're looking for, um, and. I finished up that conversation and I happened to be moving at the time as well. And I was wrapping up the room that I used as my office during my school time. And this vision board popped up and on the vision board, it sort of said, you know, I want to go back and work in the nonprofit space because I had early in my career that experience at Cantide and a few other things um, really gave me a taste for what nonprofit work and cause work look like. And I was like, you know what? I want to go back into that space, but I've now spent nearly 15 years in tech at this point, and I love technology, the innovation that's there, the fast pace. And so I was like, I want to find a job that marries nonprofit cause, charitable sector, with my tech experience, ideally in a place where I can do client work, right? And I was like, I got really specific on this vision board, like what it is that I wanted to be doing, and. I didn't wanna walk away, you know, one of the common things that people always talk about is like, you know, if you're gonna go into nonprofit sector, you have to be prepared to take a pay cut. And I was like, mm, yeah. I, I don't know if I wanna take a pay cut. <laughs> I'm kind of enjoying the lifestyle that I've got. And, um, you know, I, I've got commitments um, and I wanna make sure that I can live up to those commitments. And this recruiter called me again. And he was like, you know what Anusha, I really think you should talk to these people in Calgary and um, I took the call and five and a half years later here I am. <laughs>
0: That's amazing i I realized that we jumped the gun because there's a lot of context we have that maybe the audience might not have so if you could do me a favor and quickly describe what Eloqua does and what Benevity does because I feel like we're talking as if they know, but they might not know.
1: They probably don't. Yeah, Yeah. fair enough. Um, So Eloqua was what I would call, you know, very early marketing tech. Um, They, uh, you know, over the 12 years that I was there, um, and not counting the Oracle years, um, you know, we started off in the early days as this chat product, right? Anybody remember chat as it was way back when? Started off as a chat product, which then pivoted and became actually a marketing automation platform. So for people who are familiar with HubSpot, Marketo, um, tools that are in that tech space, where you look at how do you automate, you know, um, communications that you might send out, notifications, email campaigns, etc. This was sort of the engine that ran all of that, and in those days was you know, one of the very early players in that space. Um, and so I, I'd probably say that my background there was where I actually had an opportunity to both learn tech, but also learn marketing, learn about what modern marketing looked like using technology. Um, and then Benevity is, um, I would say, you know, we're the technology that powers some of the biggest, most iconic brands With their purpose driven programs and um, their programs really can run the gamut from, you know, managing their volunteering programs to running, um, you know, corporate campaigns where they might be giving funds to specific causes to providing sort of the platform in which they're engaging their employees to want to do good in some way. And so that could be through actions that the employees make. It could be through collective action where they're driving movements around specific causes. Um, And then of course, you know, uh, powering sort of the, call it the the customer engagement uh, programs that our clients might have where they're engaging with their own customers on how do you sort of catalyze movements with your, your companies, the clients that they work with and the customers that they work with, the public, um, to be able to sort of drive sort of some sort of good. And so we provide that entire engine on that back end.
0: So, Nevity, you mentioned the recruiter called on the second time to convince you to take the call. And, you know, something must have been said in your conversation, because I, I'm assuming there's like some kind of intervening process where at that stage, eventually you probably talk to the founders. So what was said to you, because even though it married two of your interests, tech and you know doing good work in terms of like a non-profit perspective you still have to be sold on like could they actually do what they're they said they were going to do so what was it in those conversations that convinced you that this was the company that could do it
1: <laughs> uh I, I can't say that i was convinced that they could do it
0: did you know that every time you left a five out of five review for this podcast a tamil parent lets their child pursue a career in the creative arts okay that's probably not true but if there's a chance that it is, do you really want to jinx it? Leave a review. Do it for the young creative in you.
1: But what I was convinced was that the people that I was talking to, um, and so this is like the founder, Brian DeLottenville, you know, um, you know, they had a, and he had a really specific vision of how this could come to life. And, you know, if you ever hear Brian speak, there is you just sort of stand in awe of having somebody who himself was an ex-bay street lawyer really as far removed from the nonprofit space and the cause space but you, really what you started to understand was like when you come and i think this is the the joy of sort of the the tech space is that you come in and you look at problems very differently right rather than when you've lived in it you almost have a little bit of an outsider's view and you can look at things and you can say how do i disrupt this how do i make this better, How could technology help? And I think he'd be the first to admit that he's not a technologist and he's not encumbered by that. But the great thing about it is you can then dream about what is entirely possible. And I think that's the thing about Benevity. It's um, yes, you can power these iconic brands to go and and you know through the power of their people. And we have over 20 million employees who participate in these programs the impact that they can make is in the billions of dollars and the hundreds of thousands of hours of volunteer time and effort. So the the social impact of that can be huge. But I think the thing that gets me excited and what, what Brian spoke to when he and I chatted during my interview process was, well, what's the impact that happens to those nonprofits, to the cause space, to the charitable sector? And there was a drive and a desire to bring much more efficiency to that space to allow those nonprofits to actually be able to focus on the work that they were best suited to do. And I think it hit home for me because I'd had that experience when I was at Cantide, when I was, you know, I done a whole bunch of volunteer work through my dance, things like that, where I could see that, you know, there were so many things that you do because you're so small. You don't have access to the resources. You might not have access to the skill sets. Um, to the talent that you need, that perhaps the for-profit sector easily gets access to, right? You sort of attract that type of um, people. The infrastructure is there. Versus in the nonprofit sector and the charitable sector, it's a little bit slower to get there. Um, and so all of a sudden, it was like, oh, the thing that I'm passionate about, and I didn't, I couldn't even articulate it at that point. But when he spoke to it, I was like, that's a problem that I want to go solve that I want to help solve. Um, and so it became more something that convinced me because of the call it the um, the problem statement than it was the the end state because I didn't know and I still don't know what the end state will be, right? this is, this is the beauty of tech it's continuously growing on you. But at that point in time, it was really about, you know, what, what was the problem itself? And can I fall in love with this problem? And I did.
0: So he convinced you that, Hey, this was a problem worth solving. You got excited about it. And then when you left Oracle at that point, you told me you left on uh your last day was a Friday, you packed up, you went home, gave some stuff to your parents uh, on the Saturday Sunday, you're on a flight and Monday you were starting work in Calgary. So you move cities, you move jobs. Um, Number one, uh, what made you decide that, you know, you want to kind of just cut, you know, pull out the bandit and just make the move to Calgary without even like some kind of transition period. And number two, uh, yeah, I guess it's a two part question. One is making the physical move, but number two, why not take a break in between?
1: I wish I'd taken a break in between. (laughs) You know, I, I think it's one of those things and You know, especially I think the last two years have uh, really sort of taught me a lot about, you know, the importance of building resiliency and and taking that break. And so in hindsight, I wish I'd taken the time um, and not necessarily sort of made that move as quickly as I did. Um, But at the time, you know, part of it was I was ready for that adventure. I was um, coming off of a big project uh, at Oracle, um, had done some great work. I'd sort of felt a sense of completion um, of this thing that I, w- I was doing there. And now it was time for me to get on my next adventure. And so um, Calgary was a part of that, right? I was I was going to move cities and I was going to try this uh, new life and build this new life over here. And In all honesty, when I did it, you know, I I don't think anybody at Benevity would be surprised when I say this. You know, I didn't think it was going to be a five plus year thing. I thought maybe one, maybe two years. Um, But, you know, I'm still in love with the city and, uh, you know, it was still going strong. Uh,
0: In terms of Benevity as a company, um, I know it's not as common, but, you know, they are structured as a B Corp. And that's not really a common decision, especially a company of that size, um, and I could be wrong. You can correct me, there. But what was the reasoning behind the Benevity like deciding to structure themselves that way?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think again, you know, uh, coming back to Brian and the the original founders who who looked at Benevity, um I think a lot of it came from an ethos and a philosophy that you can do good. you can be good, and you can also create good, right? Like you can create great companies. And, you know, um, doing a good job on the bottom line doesn't mean you need to sacrifice doing good in the world, right? And so you can actually do that together. And I think by structuring us as a B Corp, it actually got to the heart of the culture we wanted to build an organization that saw purpose at the heart Of who we are. So as much as it sort of, um, you know, became an anchor point, I think, in the early years around what our culture was, and what was important to us, we weren't just going to make decisions simply because, you know, it made sense on the bottom line, we needed to make decisions that created, you know, um, call it that that catalyst effect that allowed for that good, and I call it the triple win, I don't know if that's probably the right word to describe it. But you know, it had to be good for the people who were part of that company. There was good that was happening in the nonprofit cause base. And it also created good, you know, for those companies, those brands who were trusting us to help them create those very same cultures within their own companies as well. And so having that um, less about the B Corp status, but more about that philosophy of being a B Corp was really what you know became important to us, um, especially in those early years. And now it's sort of become a part of that culture and a part of that philosophy versus the sole thing that is it's anchored on.
0: How does a Benevity make revenue? And I don't know if you know this, but like how do they acquire their first group of customers?
1: Um, you know, I, I think there's a story um, about uh, one of our early clients being uh, CP Rail. Uh, CP Rail is a, a massive sort of, uh, you know, especially out here in the West. I don't know, is Alberta called West or is it Central? I
0: don't know. It's West, yeah, we say West. Is it West? <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> so, you know, the CP Rail is, you know, a, a very sort of longstanding organization here. And they were actually our, one of our first early clients. Um, and you've really got to hand it to them because we probably were a company of less than 10 people at the time, had a, you know, small technology, took a risk um and and brought us on board. Um, but it was actually Nike, who was sort of that that company that came on board that sort of broke opened the doors for us. Um, they were looking for not just the the software itself, but they also wanted a user experience that really reflected their purpose, their culture for their people. Um, and they were looking to Benevity as this this very small, you know, mighty little company out there in, in Western Canada um, to, to build out what that UI would be for, for them. Um, and they bought us. And it really sort of, I think, you know, when you think about points in time in a company's history, was that point in time that said, oh, this is something we can do. There's product market fit here. You know, if you if you talk about product management and you think about, does your product fit the the market that you're going after. Here was an enterprise company, probably had the resources to go build it themselves, but all of a sudden we're like, hold on, I might be able to get you guys to build this. We're going to focus on what this tool can do for us and really think about those best practices. You guys are going to handle sort of the technology and all of that that comes with it. Um, And it opened the doors to us bringing on brands like Google and Microsoft and companies like that who. You know, if you think about purpose-driven brands, brands that are known not just for their products and their solutions, but are also known as cultures that look at their people, their um, their community, and their ecosystems as part of their mission and their purpose. Those were the type of, types of companies that were coming into the client ecosystem here at Benevity, and that sort of uh, I think you know built the momentum to where it is today, where we've got. Nearly a thousand companies who you know are part of our client community. We've got almost twenty million users um, who are using our our solutions, um, and so you've got an over two million causes that are in our database. Um, you know, and hundreds of thousands of them engaging with us at a global scale. And so, small company, you get sort of like the one anchor, and then it sort of opens the doors for the
0: rest. So it's it's like a like they pay monthly here, some kind of. Annual oh, in terms to, of revenue, yeah, it.
1: yeah, it's very similar to um, many sort of uh, services, a subscription um, businesses. So you've got sort of annual fees subscription where you give it gives you access to the technology itself. You'll have services um, that you might be paying for as well. There's some companies who, you know, look to us not just for, um, you know, providing the technology, but also providing sort of call it the human human capital. Um, and the best practices and the consulting that come along with it in order for them to actually be able to leverage the software well.
0: So were you in the company when they, like you said, there's 10 employees at the time. Were you part of that group?
1: No, I wasn't. I came in much later. So my story of Benevity is different from my story at Eloqua. Eloqua is the startup story Oracle was like, it's scaled, it's already there. And then Benevity was in between. Um, I came at Benevity where there were almost 100 people that were already in the organization. Uh, And I came on board as their, um, you know, think of it almost as like a post-sale leader. Once that contract is signed, sales has brought that client in. um, How does the organization really sort of wrap their arms around this client and help them adopt the, the solutions um, and sort of you know support them through that journey, uh, and so I came on board as their VP of Client Success, and uh, over the years have sort of really sort of built out uh, a Client Success organization, and so you know that's that's kind of my focus there.
0: You know, you made a comment earlier, and this is one of the things I was going to ask you as well. But if you you know were to look back and when you were you know you did you came out of school with an economics slash human biology kind of specialty as your degree but then you spent the next 20 years in tech um does that influence the way you think about you know you know advising you know maybe other folks or just like looking at the future of education when you recruit talent in terms of number one the school matter or does program matter and like or is it just like is there different ways of identifying talent um because education isn't really that big of a deal because where you start is for most people, is not where you end up, anyways.
1: Um, I think it's a great question. I I don't know the right answer to this because um, I fully admit that, like, as a child, I don't think anybody could have predicted that I would have gone into tech. Right, looking at me, I was the nerd who was reading a book all the time. Like, you know, I was more likely to be in academia than I was, you know, going to be somebody who was going into tech. Um. But I have a love of learning and I have, you know, I, I think there is a place for that in every person's life. Now, how that learning shows up can be different. It can be formal education. It can also be informal. It can be, um, you know, and I think in the world that we live in now where technology is so prevalent, you know, um, teaching your children and exposing them to technology at a young age, I think gives them a facility with technology that we didn't have when we were their ages. Right. Um, having said that, I also think that there is beauty in literature and there's, you know, there is a um, a way of thinking that you can learn. Um, and that way of thinking, that critical thought process, it may come through your formal education. It may also come through your life experiences. And so I actually look at it You know, if someone comes to me and says, you know, should I go to this university or should I go to that university or should I do this course or should I do that course? I think I I care less about that and more the question is, well, what do you want to learn by the end of this? What do you want to be able to do by the end of this? And if you don't know the answer to that, then going into a formal program is great because it at least guarantees that you're going to be learning a set of things and you will come out with a set of skills. Um, But if you can put the thought into what those skills are that you want, then the likelihood is you're going to marry the thing that you're passionate about or you're interested in with a set of skills and a set of tools that you can then apply towards things that you enjoy. Um, And I think that's where it becomes that's the that's the piece that I think is sometimes harder, because when you're young, it's like your world is your oyster and there's so much there that you could explore Um, And so I just, I just think that it's one of those things where you kind of have to look at it as holistically as you potentially can.
0: So when you're looking to build out your team, what are you looking at in terms of, oh, I want this person on my team? What are you looking at?
1: I'm looking for people who, um, you know, and I think it depends also at like what stage in the organization you are at, what level you're at, um because the type of team that you build um, may differ. But I would say generally, I'd look at the problem that we're trying to solve and say to, to solve those problems, what skills do I bring to the table? What skills don't I have that we need in order to solve that problem? And then who here already is on the team that can solve those problems and what can't be solved? And so, how do you build that diversity on that team, both from a skill set perspective, from a way of thinking, um, but also from experiences, right? Once you get up to a certain place um, and maturity in an organization, you're also looking for pattern recognition. And so, part of this isn't so much that you want people to play from a playbook, but that you want them to have enough tools and experiences in their toolkit. Um, that when they see those patterns, they're like, oh, I'm going to take this tool out. I might not use it exactly the way I used it last time around, but I don't have to go and invent the thing from scratch every time. And so part of that team building is also looking for those people who who bring a wider set of experiences that can help you with that pattern recognition.
0: Yeah, because I was curious, because like I'm a huge sports fan, so... For example, the NBA, when you draft a player, it's almost like recruiting talent, in this case, for a company. You know, they say there's two things, either draft the best player available or draft for fit. Like, what do you like right. kind of like describe? So if, I, I guess I know it's not an absolute answer, but if you had to choose between the two philosophies, so in this case, like someone that's amazing, like super talented or best fit, um, what are you generally going to go for? Because the thought process with tech is, you know, you get that person, you kind of, you know, a, a smart, talented, hardworking person kind of, you know, learn different things versus, you know, you get someone that's just particular to like a certain problem or something you're trying to solve, they might not be as strong later on to the next problem you're trying to solve. So just curious yeah. what answer you would give there.
1: I would say earlier in the maturity cycle of the business, generalists are the ones that I would go higher um the specialist i find comes later and the specialist has a place right i and i think you know part of it is you know the as you are in a tech career as well eventually you get to a place where you decide what is the thing you want to specialize in um but i think the longer you stay a generalist the more varied your experiences become right i i've managed you know, I've been lucky and I've been fortunate that I've had opportunities open up where I've been exposed to sales, I've been exposed to marketing, product management, now, you know, client facing work, um, agency work, um, you know, professional services. And so all of a sudden, you know, you get to a place where you're like, most problems that come at you as a generalist, I generally will find on the team, they're like, oh, there's like five different ways we could solve this problem. What's the constraint that we're working within? Which of these solutions will I choose? Um, But as you get bigger and bigger, you actually need the specialists because the specialists are like, this is a very niche problem that we have. We could try and band-aid a potential path forward. But if there's a niche problem, there might be a niche solution that has already been done. And bringing that specialist in means that you might have somebody who can get you to a solution faster and they typically you know done a lot of work and have had a lot of experience that they can bring to bear much faster in that scenario
0: money can be hard to come by but here is a hundred dollar opportunity for you join my free newsletter for free exclusive content and a free chance to win a hundred dollars when i hold special draws did i mention that it's free um for yourself you know you are now you said almost like 20 years in the tech game um the natural question to ask and maybe it's not the right question but do you see yourself eventually building your own company in the future or do you see like your greatest sense of joy like your where you feel like you belong is kind of helping tech companies um at a particular stage instead of starting yeah
1: never say never I don't know but I haven't I I'm just generally I find um I love bringing that vision to life. I love sort of that, um, you know. And you've you've probably heard this in the world of um, entrepreneurship, right? There's millions of ideas that are out there. What percentage of those millions of ideas actually get to a place where somebody builds? And creates a company and then what percentage of that actually gets to a place where they go and sell to one client and then you think about the next percentage of that that actually gets to a place where they are getting into growth mode and so it just that funnel just gets smaller and smaller and smaller until you actually get to that place where you're like oh this is a viable company that is growing and I think I love that challenge from after it's been ideated people have gone in and they've figured out market fit as soon as they've gotten market fit, like, what do you now do? How do you actually become that minuscule 0.1% that becomes successful? Like that challenge of it, um, where you go and you go after market segment and you sort of grow and scale the company. I think that's the part that I'm enjoying right now. Um, And that's the part that sort of, you know, has me pausing. But if you go back and look at my career, I've, I've made a number of pivots along the way. And so... You might be talking to me in five years and i might have made an entirely different decision at that point
0: if you had a chance to go back in a time machine and visit your 16 year old self what would you tell her
1: i would tell her to have the courage um to take the risks you know i think I, there's such privilege that we have that we were talking about earlier and i think use that privilege um you know to really sort of leap and so you have the courage um, to go and take those leaps, but also have the curiosity to 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 explore things sooner. I think I I took a while before I had the courage to feed my curiosity. I think I had a lot of curiosity as I was a kid, but I just didn't have the courage to do a lot of things and to buck the call it the the expectations that were sitting in front of me. I think it took me a while before I was ready to um, to try different things and and take the, those leaps of faith. And so I would tell my 16 year old self, you can do it. Because what's the worst that happens?
0: (laughs) I mean, you're young. You you just go into the next idea, right? Like if you, yeah,
1: you you try different things. I think there's there's a beauty. There's such beauty in failure. Um, and I think you know that's that I think is the. Um, the thing that my 16 year old self, who was so much focused on the tests and getting, you know, a certain percentage so that you could get into university, or you could pass the course or whatever it might be. Uh, I don't think I really understood what the beauty of failure actually meant. And so, you know, I might change my answer. It's courage and curiosity, but it's also, you know, embracing failure a little bit sooner.
0: What's been the failure you've learned the most from And we can limit it to like, say the last three to five years.
1: (laughs) You mean it wasn't about like riding a bicycle? (laughs) Um, You know, I, I think part of it also is that um, you, especially when you're, you're, you know, I was lucky that I grew up decently protected all my life, right. With the people around me sort of, you know, you, Uh, I think like you do with your kids, you know, you want to try and create an environment where um, you don't want them to bump their knees, and you don't want them to break bones, you you know, you you somewhat, you know, protect them through life. Um, And I think, as a result, you know, coming back to failure, I didn't necessarily take those risks. As early in my life, I played it safe um, for a very long time. And so I think, you know, I don't necessarily look at it as some big failure, but I think, I don't know, maybe I just wasn't ready um, to take those leaps uh, until I actually started doing it where I was well into my twenties and thirties by then. But I sort of look back and I was like, ah, oh, I wonder what, you know, you, you kind of had do the path of not taken, right? You're like, I wonder what that path would have been like if I would taken that risk and moved to Europe when I was 23, when I, you know, had a job offer out there. And I was like, no, nah, you know what, I'm going to stay in Toronto and stay close. And I sort of think back and I'm like, oh, you know, maybe I should have gone to Silicon Valley. You know, what would that have been like? But I think the, the paths that you end up taking are the right ones. But I look back on those times as those times where I didn't go through the door of opportunity. And so they, when those doors open up, maybe you should.
0: Yeah, they did a study where like people regret stuff they don't do way more than the things they have done so not doing something holds way more it's like you know if you get feedback I think they say the the weight of a negative piece of feedback is like 10 times as impactful or like memorable as you know positive feedback so Mm -hmm. I think it's like human nature um looking forward in terms of your personal legacy um what would be in a few sentences like how would you want to be remembered by your friends and family
1: oh wow um you know with legacy it's one of those funny things I don't know what my legacy will be, Era. I think it'll be up to my friends and family to to tell you what that looks like. But I hope the things that I do with my life, however long it is. I can do it well, that it creates value and those individual accomplishments, whatever they might be, allow me to create a space where others can actually build off of that and be a place where the problems that I can, you know, contribute to where there are solutions, I'm building on what others have built, but now what I'm contributing, others can build on as well. And that ultimately, whatever that body of work ends up looking like, hopefully decades from now, you know, is a body of work that means something, has an impact in the world, um, does some good.
0: And that's a good segue into the last part of the podcast. So it's a, a fun speed run I like to call creator confessions. So basically, I'm going to say a bunch of statements and you're going to tell me the first thing that kind of pops to mind. Ready? Okay. All right, let's go. Favorite Tamil food.
1: Oh, opuma.
0: <laughs> something that scares you.
1: Horror films.
0: Insecurity that you have.
1: Sometimes I'm not good enough.
0: Favorite TV show you're watching.
1: It's a Korean TV show called Attorney Woo. Oh, I
0: thought I heard it. Okay, uh, place you itching... <laughs> It's like about it's autistic
1: woman who is a lawyer, um, and so anyway, I'm enjoying
0: it. A place you're itching to travel to? New Zealand. Uh, fellow Telmo creator, you want to give a shout out to?
1: Uh, I'm I've been cyber stalking her so far. Um, I think it's Art by Thivia. She does these massive paintings. Um, that's it it caught my eye
0: also a fellow guest on the podcast earlier um no was she okay yeah, awesome. she was. Uh, favorite childhood memory
1: <laughs> it was probably sort of uh encompasses my my sister and i and our dynamic um but uh she wanted uh, a piece of bread that i was eating at the time and i refused to give it to her and uh she took that piece of bread and crumpled it into a ball and put it in her mouth uh <laughs> and <laughs> I always remember it as sort of this older sister, younger sister dynamic for us.
0: Um, What's something you like to do for fun outside of work?
1: Uh, I'm a huge reader. I love reading.
0: Favorite movie of all time?
1: Shawshank Redemption or Memento.
0: Two good movies. Um, A purchase you've made in the last few years that you splurged on, but you have no regret about it?
1: Uh, An electric bike.
0: Uh pet peeve? Uh,
1: people who don't tip in North America.
0: Person or celebrity that you look up to?
1: Oh, good question. It's a person, Marilyn Curley, my very first boss. Um, she was, uh, I was a teenager. She ran HR um, at the job that I had and she was PEI through and through. She was born in Prince Edward Island um, and uh, just a phenomenal person. Somebody whose leadership qualities to this day, I, you know, emulate.
0: Um, If you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, a regret that you would have?
1: I don't think I have one. I think it's one of those things that a few years ago I wanted. I didn't want to have regrets. And so I I sort of created a bit of a bucket list uh, and did a bunch of things. And the rest are just experiences.
0: Um, A celebrity or just person whose life you want to experience for just one day?
1: Elon Musk. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that guy's a great marketer you're probably like I would say 50% of the guests on the podcast have said his name really eh? of, yeah. I'm,
1: it's it's actually incredible I'm like how does one run two companies and have the life that he does I don't know I just I'm curious
0: well I mean you have not much going on socially and from like another other things or like you, everything <laughs> <laughs> you're doing it well and pro- professionally but not personally I think that's how you get it done
1: <laughs> yeah that's possible you know the other person that I would love to in all seriousness is um Susan Kane. uh have you ever of. read a book called bittersweet it yeah. actually just came out she she wrote a book called the power of introverts um, oh yes I read that okay. Yeah, um I think I, I'd love to be a fly on the wall with her process of how she writes books and how she thinks Um, but yeah, I'm still curious about Elon Musk too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Since you're an avid reader, what's your, what's been, what's your favorite book that you've read recently that's had a big impact on you?
1: I would say Bittersweet, Susan Cain. Yeah, it is. Um, I think it was one of those things and it was probably the timing of it was also, um, really good because it's, as we were all sort of coming out of, You know, I don't know if coming out of the pandemic when, you know, infection rates are still pretty high is the the right framing. But, um, you know, I think there's something about that book uh, that gets to the heart of the human experience that we've all had over the last couple of years. Um, And so I just I found that book so powerful.
0: A belief, behavior or habit that's improved your life?
1: Not reading the phone before I go to
0: bed. And finally, a piece of advice that you would give to your fellow aspiring Tamil creators out there:
1: Have courage and be curious.
0: I love it, short and brief. Um, Anisha, thank you so much for jumping on. I think that was a really good conversation. We uh, took a big detour at the beginning, but we kind of got back on track. Um, amazing story. You know, someone that's listening to this, um, you know, has been inspired and just wants to connect. Uh, what is the best way for someone to reach out to you?
1: Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, um, probably the best way to, to get a hold of me. I'm less of a social media person. So I I stalk a lot of people, but I don't necessarily do as much. So LinkedIn is probably the best place to catch me.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you again. And for those of you listening, I uh, appreciate you guys as always. Reach out if you have any feedback. See you on the next episode.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much, Tara. I really appreciate it.